All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Colossians chapter 3, and if you don't, that's all right. We'll have the Scripture on the screen for you this morning, Uh, but we are continuing our series through the uh, book of Colossians in the New Testament. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, around the year 62 A.D., to the uh, church in the ancient city of Colossae. And so uh, we have enjoyed going through this uh, verse by verse, and today we come to verse 18 and 19 is where we're going to be. But before we dig into that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word and help us to understand it as we look at it this morning. Would you pray again with me? Jesus, again, we come before you Uh, just acknowledging that you are God. You are the creator of the universe. You know us. You love us. You have given your life for us. So Lord Jesus, would you reign supreme in this place today? Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Help us to understand the words that you have given us, your word, Lord, in the Bible, in these scriptures today. Would you give us wisdom and understanding and practical knowledge to know how to apply these truths in our lives? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so far uh, in this letter, the Apostle Paul has made one thing abundantly clear. When you come to Christ, when you trust Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, your whole life changes. Your whole life changes. Think about what Paul has already said up until this point in these first three chapters. What, is, what has he said? He's, he's mentioned, he's, he's told us, he's talked about how we have been transferred to the kingdom of Christ, right? We have a new citizenship, right? We're citizens of heaven now. Then he says we must seek the things above, right? So we have new desires, we have new priorities in our lives, and this involves, as we saw last week, that we must put sin to death, right? We must seek to eliminate any sin in our lives, and we must seek to put on, as Paul says, the godly characteristics of Christ himself, right? And so and to, to summarize kind of all of this, in verse 17, this is the last verse we looked at last week, look what Paul says. This is kind of a summary statement of everything he said. And whatever you do, whatever you do in your life, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there was a time in your life, if you know Christ today, there was a time in your life where before you knew Jesus, your whole life revolved around yourself, right? We know that to be true. But now, everything, Paul says, everything you do in word, in deed, your heart motivation, your priorities, your schedule, your calendar, everything you do must revolve around Christ and his good design for your life. That's what Paul's saying here. So it makes sense then that he would now move his attention to talking about the places where we see this being worked out, right? Where where this new lifestyle, these new heart motivations, these new desires, this new obedience 
that you are able to pursue in Christ, right? Where is all of that going to work itself out? Well, first and foremost, and most practically, it's going to work itself out where you live, in your home, in your household. Because if you can't, if you can't center your home life around Jesus and his priorities and his kingdom, if we can't center our home lives around him and that, how do we think that it's going to even be possible for us to do, to do this in any other part of our lives? How is it going to be possible for us to give ourselves fully to Christ in all these other departments of our lives, so to speak? We've got to get it right at home first. So Paul addresses six different people very specifically in the next few verses of this letter he's writing. And we're going to look over the next three weeks at two of them at a time. All right. So he addresses wives, husbands, children, fathers, bond servants, and masters. All right. So each week we're going to look at two of those at a time and really go in depth talking about what those human-to-human relationships are and what they look like when they're truly centered around Jesus and his kingdom and his priorities. So this week, we're going to look at the first two people uh, that Paul addresses in a household, and that is wives and husbands. How can wives and husbands center a marriage around Jesus Christ? That's essentially what we're looking at today as we look at verses 18 and 19, the next two verses in this letter. So let's, let's read those two verses. They're short, all right? These are very short, but we're going to talk a lot about two small verses, okay? Here we go. Paul says to the church in Colossae, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is just a small fraction of the New Testament's entire teaching on marriage, all right? Uh, now, obviously, Paul, Paul doesn't say everything there is to say here, right, about wives and husbands, right? He doesn't say any here, anything here about the really important decisions that you have to make in a marriage, right? Like, what are we going to eat tonight and what brand of toothpaste are we going to share, right? I mean, who knew, right? Before you got married, you, see, you didn't think about those things, did you? Like Crest, Colgate, which one? Because we're not going to buy two different kinds of toothpaste, right? We have to share. But around this same time, right? Around this same time that Paul is writing this letter to Colossae, around the year 62 AD, he's also writing another letter to a different church, the church in Ephesus, all right? So the letter to the Ephesians, right? And in that letter, he expounds even more on the role of wives and husbands in a Christian marriage, all right? So to understand what Paul is really saying here in these two short verses, we're gonna have to look at what he has also said uh, in Ephesians today. So this is gonna be a sermon really more from Ephesians than, than Colossians. But what we'll see here, so, <clears throat> so I've preached uh, specifically on marriage uh, a few times, a couple of times here at Kernan over the last several years, most recently last August. Now, 
Paul, he didn't try to reinvent the wheel between his letter to the Ephesians and Colossians, and I'm not going to try to reinvent my sermon between uh, what I preached last August and today. So I want to be pretty clear here. This sermon, it's important, okay? It is very important for everyone, whether you are married or not, because as Christians, all right, as Christians living in a society that is becoming uh, more and more post-Christian and secularized here in America in our culture, the question is for all of us who follow Jesus in this world, if, if you're not married, okay, if you're not married and you're listening today, then, you know, the question here is how will you, as a follower of Jesus, support God's design for marriage in our society? How will you be a supporter of God's design for marriage. So that could happen in conversations you have with friends, right? It could happen uh, among your married friends as you encourage them, uh, or it could be even perhaps preparing for marriage yourself one day. But if you are married here in the room today, how will you pursue, right? How will you pursue God's design for marriage in your own marriage. So that so this is applicable and highly important in today's world for all Christians to understand and be on the same page whether you are married or not, we all need this truth today. So what I want us to see here again looking at Colossians but also Ephesians, what we're going to see today is very simply God's design for marriage. All right? God's design for marriage. Three things really. One, it brings glory to God. Two, it's good for us. And three, it's good for the world. So let's break that down. God's design for marriage, number one, brings glory to God himself, all right? So here's what you need to know if you're married today, all right? Your marriage is not about you, okay? Now, maybe you woke up this morning thinking that, all right? Maybe you thought that driving here with your spouse this morning, right? But your marriage is not about you, all right? One of the fundamental truths about humanity is that we were created not for our own glory, but for God's glory, right? We were created by God for God. We were created to love him and worship him and center our whole lives around him. And when we do that, right, when we seek first his kingdom, everything else falls into its proper places. So the first thing we've got to get right in our hearts and our lives and in our marriages is to love God supremely, right? And so that is the best way that we can love one another and serve one another is when we love him first. But because of our desires and our natural tendency to glorify ourselves instead of God, we do not promote God. We do not promote his glory, right? We are experts at making a name for ourselves. Just think about how often in a conversation that you're having with someone. Now, this is, I'm asking you to be brutally honest with yourself here, okay? We need some, this is a good dose of self-awareness this morning, all right? How often, how often in a conversation with someone are you looking for an opportunity to, to maybe brag just a little bit, you know, to just talk 
a little bit, to, to insert into the conversation about that big fish that you caught that was bigger than the one they caught, right? Or that home run that you hit back in high school, you know what I mean? The glory days, right? Or, or just how well you're doing or the degree that you got and how hard you've worked, right? We just look for opportunities to kind of insert into conversations things that make us look good. There is a natural tendency there, not just in your marriage, I'm talking about with anybody, right? With any friend or coworker to just kind of brag a little bit about ourselves to keep people thinking that we're something great. That is true of every human to a degree. So even though we do this, right? Even though we are sinful in that way, the Bible still teaches that we are nonetheless made in the image of God. We are created in God's image, which means we all, all humanity, has the capacity to reflect God's good characteristics in our lives, thus giving Him the honor and the glory that He deserves as our Creator. Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible, speaks about the way God created humanity. Look at this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is very clear, and this is very important to understanding any kind of human relationship in this world. All men and all women whether you are married or single or divorced or widowed, all humans are created equally in the image of God. No one gender, no one race, no one group carries more of the image of God than another. All humans are created equal in essence and value before their creator, by their creator, for their creator. This is God's design. So in that regard, men and women are the same. Yet, this verse also tells us that men and women are different because there is male and female. <clears throat> so God took the first two humans, right? Adam and Eve, a male and a female, and he created a covenantal relationship for them. He created a covenantal relationship for them, a special relationship that would serve as the foundational institution for all of life and all of human history that would follow. We call this a marriage, right? So look in Genesis 2.24. Again, we're still in the very beginning of time, right? And what does it say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, so let's be clear. Right here today, this is God's design. This is God's design. Marriage is not a human invention, it is God's invention. So therefore, he gets to design it. If you tinker with something and create some kind of cool contraption in your garage, kind of like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak did with the Apple computer, 
right, so long ago, right? If you create something and you make something, guess what? You own the rights to it. So you get to define what it is and what it isn't. You get to define how it is supposed to properly function. Well, that is true of God and marriage. We didn't make this up. God himself created marriage, and most importantly, he created it for a specific purpose, right? So we can't redefine marriage. That is actually impossible. God himself has defined it. It doesn't belong to us. It's his idea. And he created it for a purpose. And what is that purpose? How does a marriage bring glory to God? Well, first of all, let's define it quickly, right? Marriage is a covenantal union of one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's what marriage is. It is a covenantal union of one man and one woman for a lifetime, right? Now, what is the purpose in that, right? How does, how does that bring glory to God? Well, I'm glad you asked, all right? Let's look, Ephesians 5, okay? Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Again, we hear the same verse, but Paul is quoting Genesis, right? Paul's quoting all the way back to Genesis. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But look what he says. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Because when you think about your marriage, do you, is the first thing you think about Jesus and the church? <laughs> Probably not, right? I mean, maybe you were married in a church, maybe not, right? Maybe you go to church with your spouse. But is the first thing you think about when you think about your marriage every day, Jesus and the church, and how your marriage is supposed to be some kind of image or reflection of that? Well, like I said, our marriages are not about us. Marriage is designed to point us to something greater than us. You see, God's intention all along was for marriage to be a picture, a demonstration of what he is like, of his love for his people, the church, us. Marriage was designed in this way to bring God glory first and foremost. So if we can understand that first, that our marriages are for God, created by him, designed by him, and in some mysterious way to be a picture of Jesus and the church, if we can at least acknowledge that up front, then and only then can we see how marriage is good for us. That brings us to the second point. God's design for marriage is good for us. When I say us, I mean really everyone, but of course married people, particularly today. Now, how so? How is this the case? Well, look at, again, let's go back to the beginning of time where this whole thing was designed in the first place. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, that, that word used here for helper, right? It, it's often misunderstood at best. And at worst, 
it is used to make women feel inferior as if uh, the, only ro- the only role for them is to help around the house. And listen, Trimper Longman, the theologian, and I wholeheartedly agree with this, he says, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not what this word means. The original Hebrew word here is ezer, ezer, all right? And is the same word used to describe God himself in the Psalms. And in military contexts, it means an ally, all right? So next time, you know, you're on a romantic date, candlelit dinner, you just look across the table and say, my sweet Azair, I just love you, right? I'm just kidding. Don't do that, all right? (laughs) So this is telling, right? But what what is this word telling us, right? This word, Azair, is telling us that God was making a complementary partner for Adam, an ally, an equal Yet, they're different. They're noticeably different, not just biologically, but in the roles God himself gave Adam and Eve to play in this creation. Where Eve Eve is weak, Adam is strong. Where Adam is weak, Eve is strong. You see, it's really a beautiful design. God created a husband and a wife, these roles, to complement one another as partners who are equal in essence and value, equally created in the image of God. One is no better than the other. Yet God has ordained them to complement one another, to help each other by living out certain roles that lift the other up. And how does a husband and wife do that? How how do they complement one another? Well, before we read what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about these complementary roles, I do I want you to understand, all right? If you if you're not a Christian here today, or maybe you're just you know visiting and you haven't been walking through Colossians with us to get the full context here, I want you to bear with us as we as we look at this. And, and it maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you're new to Christianity, and you've never heard a sermon about marriage. Or maybe you're just new to this church. But there is some uncomfortable language uh, in this passage here for our modern minds to really understand. But we're going to look at this very closely today, all right? So so just bear with me. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to explain it, all right? So Ephesians 5, let's start in verse 22, and then go all the way to verse 33. It's a little lengthy, but this is really good, all right? This is probably the best passage in all of Scripture, the whole Bible, about what a marriage is supposed to be like. Okay, so here we go. All right. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, our modern minds, our tendency is to get really hung up on this, the first couple words here about submission, right? That wives submit here and, and we stop, we, we kind of stop short of seeing the beauty in all of this if we get too hung up on one particular word. But I do want to explain this. There's a great quote here that I want to share with you, uh, Kathy Keller. She says, both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. So there's really a beautiful complementary role that is played by the husband and the wife in God's design for a marriage. So let's, let's talk about this. So, so one way that you could kind of summarize that is by saying wives sacrificially submit as husbands sacrificially lead. So here at Kernan, and, and we believe the New Testament is very clear, that husbands, yes, husbands should be the spiritual leader in the home, in a marriage. But we're going to talk about what that does and doesn't mean and why that is even the case and how these complementary roles go together. So theologian uh, Wayne Grudem, he, he explains something that I think is just so good that I want to share with you here. He says, though all three members of the Trinity are equal in power and in all other attributes, the Father has a greater authority. Now, I want to be clear here. What we believe about our Trinitarian God, okay? And this is a very, uh, this is a very consistent belief over the last 2,000 years, all right? Now, there's been variations and heresies that have developed, but the Christian church over the last 2,000 years has proclaimed that God is triune. In other words... God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God. There is one God in three persons. There is one God. Now, I'm not saying that we have to understand this completely. It, we can't, all right? We cannot, we cannot fully comprehend and understand God's very essence and being, though we are taught the clear things that we need to know in Scripture about this. So within this Godhead, right, within the Trinity, we see, as Grudem says, all three members of the Trinity are equal in power and in all other attributes. So God the Father is no greater in that regard than God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is no less than God the Son or God the Father. They are equally God. So... The father, though, has an authoritative role that he plays. He has a leadership role, is the right word. He has a leadership role, Grudem says, among all the members of the Trinity that the Son and the Holy Spirit do not have. So in a marriage, the man's role, the husband's role, is like that of God the Father, and the woman's role is parallel to that of God the Son. So as the church submits to Jesus' leadership 
And as Jesus submits to the Father's leadership, so wives submit to their husband's spiritual leadership as equals voluntarily. As equals voluntarily to show the world what God and His gospel looks like. So then, when we start to look at how Jesus Himself submits to the Father but is equal with the Father, we begin to see how a marriage reflects God himself, right? And we see how Jesus lays down his life for his bride. So we see this sacrificial leadership role that Jesus plays where he dies. He dies for the church, for his bride. We begin to see these things and see how marriage is designed to reflect the gospel. But notice, Paul spends a lot more time here in Ephesians 5 addressing husbands in the role of the spiritual leader, right? I mean, we know, like men, it's a proven scientific fact. We do not listen well, right? So Paul had to say a lot more to make sure that we got it, right? The wives could get it in like two sentences, like we're good, right? But the men, it's like, what now? What'd you say? Say that again, right? So... (laughs) Ephesians 5, verse 25, here we go. Ready? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this is crucial. This is crucial. If you're a husband here today, listen to this. How did Christ love the church? He sacrificed everything for her. Everything. Jesus had the riches of heaven. And yet he gave all of that up to come to earth and be born into poverty and live a life of suffering and ridicule and mockery, forfeiting, forfeiting his rights to give us, to give us, to give his church, his bride, eternal life, new life to serve. He sacrificed everything for the church. He was executed unjustly and bore the penalty of her sins. He washed his disciples' feet, something that only a slave would do in the ancient world. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet on the night before he would be crucified for their sins, showing them his true heart, his character. Husbands, that's the kind of spiritual leadership that Jesus displayed. He wasn't just a leader. He was a servant, a servant leader. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. (laughs) So husbands, it's not your wife's job to just serve you. That is not it. It's for you to serve her. It's for you to lay down your life, to sacrificially lead and set a good spiritual example for your family. Jesus gave up everything for his bride, the church, not by authoritarian rule or demanding respect or coercion. It was through sacrifice and service defined, that's what defined his love. So husbands, to sacrifice and service. Define your love for your wife. Now, wives, you don't need to 
We don't need any elbows right now, okay? We don't need any of that. And I do want to be clear, and all joking aside, this sacrificial leadership, it's never domineering. It's under no circumstance can this ever, ever be abusive in any way. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, wives submit as is fitting in the Lord. He doesn't say not at all times without question. So wives, if you do find yourself in any kind of abusive situation, you need to remove yourself from that and seek out the proper help immediately. Otherwise, husbands who are, husbands who are seeking to follow the example of Christ, if that's what your goal is and you're seeking that and you want to be a spiritual leader and a godly example to your family, step up and be that. Right? Just be that then. Step up and be the spiritual leader of your home. You don't have to wait. Do it now. But lead by serving. Love by sacrificing. Any other way is just not God's design. And in fact, it will point people, namely your wife and your kids, it will point people away from the gospel. People want nothing to do in your family and the people around you and your close inner circles of life will want, they'll want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ if they see you manipulating your family in any kind of way. But when we begin to see that marriage is meant to bring God glory first and foremost, then we see his design in it and how it's good for us. Husbands and wives are designed to both follow the example of Jesus as he voluntarily, sacrificially submits to the Father's leadership and as he voluntarily and sacrificially leads his church by serving his church and sacrificing his interest for her. Do you see that? See, that's God's design. It's a complementary, beautiful design. So, God's design for marriage, it's good for us. But it's also, number three, and quickly and lastly, it's good for the world. God's design for marriage is good for the world. Christian uh, author Richard Koken, he talks about how uh, marriage is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to really be a powerful, a powerful demonstration and a powerful witness to the world. You see, God designed marriage in such a way that when both husbands and wives are looking to Jesus as their example to follow, right, then it's got to be that way, right? When we're both looking to Jesus as that example to follow, together as one flesh, they become an example to a watching world of what the love of Christ really looks like, right? And that's good for society. Strong Christian marriages are good for society. Homes in which a husband and a wife are both looking to Jesus as their example to follow in the roles God's given them to play in a marriage, that raises good kids. That creates a good society. That creates a good home life where things can happen and flourish. It doesn't guarantee it. 
but it contributes to it. And what we see over time is the more homes that have husbands and wives following and seeking Jesus in this way, listen, do you want to see things change? Do you want to see this world change? Do you want to see Jacksonville, Florida change for the better? Of course we do. And how is that ultimately going to start and happen? In the home. That's where it's going to start. Not from the top down, not from the White House down, but from your house. Christian marriage is good for society. It's good for the gospel. It's a, such a beautiful picture and proclamation of the gospel. So as we start to understand the purpose of marriage, it's not romance, it's not good teamwork, it's not good compromise, and it's not even about your kids. When we start to see the purpose that it reflects Christ and His church and those beautiful design relationship, as we start to see that, we can start to see why distinct God-given roles for husband and wives are good because they point each other to God and are meant to point an unbelieving world to God, to the love of Jesus. Think about the love of Jesus. Whether you're married or not here today, Jesus Christ, the one who designed marriage in the first place, the one who showed perfect love, perfect love by putting himself through the ultimate darkness, pain, and suffering, by voluntarily submitting to the Father's will, by laying aside his glory so he could serve our best interests, by absorbing our wrongs upon himself so he could forgive us, by laying down his life so he could show us what perfect sacrificial love actually looks like. He died in your place because he loves you and he wants you forever. That, that's true love. It's costly. It's not cheap. It involves sacrifice. Richard Koken, to quote him again, he says, all of this, all of this is hugely challenging. I mean, who's doing this so well, you know? Listen, I get it, I understand. Marriage is not easy. It's difficult. It's not easy for anyone. No one has arrived at some miraculous peak where they don't have to deal with sin in their own hearts, right? I mean, when two people get married, right? It, it, you're talking about two sinners. Two sinners agreeing to live with each other for the rest of their lives. There's bound to be problems, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is this challenging? Absolutely. But, Koken says, in Christ, there is never ending forgiveness of our failures and strength to keep trying. Amen? There is never ending forgiveness and strength to keep trying. Listen, married or not, whatever kind of situation you find yourself in, when we think about the love of God to us, think about God's patience and love with you. How important it is to reflect that, that love and that patience and that forgiveness on a regular daily basis, a practice, to make it a practice. 
so that we can show others, starting with your spouse, right? So that we can show others the beautiful love and forgiveness of God. You see, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity every day to show someone what God is like. You have an opportunity every day to be a picture of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a, it is a truly wonder and amazement that God lets us participate in that. You know, we don't deserve that. Not only do we not deserve his death and resurrection in our place, salvation, but we don't deserve to get to participate with him and his redemptive plan for humanity. But that's exactly the role he's given you. If you look, if you look to your spouse, if you look to your spouse for the strength you need in your marriage, you will either be disappointed when they can't provide it, or you will crush them with your unrealistic expectations and the pressure you put on them. But if you look to Christ for that never-ending forgiveness and that continual daily strength, day after day, if you're looking and pressing into Jesus and his word and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you every morning or afternoon or night or whenever you spend time with God in the Bible, in his word, and in prayer, if you press into Christ and you look to him as your example for how to love your spouse, then God will give you the strength to continue on in your marriage. So no matter, no matter where you are currently in your walk with the Lord, married or not, all of us are called to represent Christ in this world in whatever role he's given us. Embrace that. And use that as an opportunity for his glory in your life. It's important for Christians to know what God has said about marriage. Thankful. Let's be thankful that he's given us this beautiful design. And let's pray. Let's pray for strength. Let's pray for perseverance. Let's pray that we all, regardless of where we are, that we all, would reflect his love, his character, his forgiveness in all the daily patterns of our lives. To that end, is Christ enough? Yes, he gives us, he gives us the design for marriage.